Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. The background of today's story, and really the whole of chapter 6, is the story in Deuteronomy 7. Chad Bird says that John 6 is painted upon a canvas, which is the Exodus and wilderness stories. The Red Sea becomes the Sea of Galilee. The manna that the Israelites ate in the wilderness becomes Jesus. And the wandering, complaining Israelites become the Judeans in the story. An important side note that typically the author of John uses the word that we often translate in English as the Jews is better translated as the Judeans, which refers to the authorities and the chief priests which stood as Jesus' opposer. This is a way for us to remember that Jesus is in fact Jewish and that not all Jews are responsible for what happened to Jesus. But we go back to the call of Abraham for a moment. Scripture doesn't say why Abraham was chosen by God to be the father of the nations. Scripture does not tell us that Abraham was somehow an amazing person who was more faithful than anyone. Just for some reason, God says, Abraham, I choose you. Now, I want you to go to a land which you do not know of yet, and you will be the father of people in your old age. It is as if God just simply looked down from heaven and said, eeny, meeny, miny, mo," and landed on Abraham. And this is one of these points that is brought up in Scripture in both Deuteronomy 7, and Paul talks about this in Romans and Galatians, that it wasn't because they are somehow superior to anyone that they are the chosen people, but they are the chosen people because God chose them. God remembered them when they were in slavery in Exodus and brings them out of slavery, out of the Red Sea, and into freedom. And the first thing that they did was they began to complain. There isn't enough food. We had water. At least when we were in slavery, we had more things to eat. A few weeks ago, Kristen and I were watching The Kitchen on the Food Network. Fun fact... Sunny, which is on that show, my claim to fame is that she retweeted me on Twitter. Um, Because she makes a pesto with collard greens and pecans, and I said, I need that recipe. And she responded, so that's my claim to fame. (laughs) But we're watching the kitchen, we're watching the Food Network, and they make this really great salmon dish. And Chris and I go, you know what, we need to be eating more fish. You know, it's healthier, and, you know, let's introduce the kids to something new Boy, that was a mistake. (laughs) Kristen worked so hard on this amazing meal, and all we heard was complaints about the food, right? It's just this human instinct for us to be people who sometimes complain. And in one of the outbursts in the wilderness in which the people are complaining, because all they have is bread to eat, God says, fine. You want something else, I'm going to give you quail. And you're going to have so much quail, it is going to be coming out of your nostrils. So it is not that Israel is particularly faithful that they were chosen. Right throughout the stories, we find that they are often very unfaithful, just like each and every one of us. 
but rather that they are chosen in spite of their unfaithfulness. Deuteronomy 7.7 7 says this, it was not because you were more numerous than any people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the nations. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. St. John Chrysostom, building upon this and reflecting on Romans chapter 4, says, Since they were chosen because of God's love for them and his oath to their fathers, it is obvious they were not chosen because of their own deeds, but simply by the grace of God. Therefore, we have no boasting in ourselves, and nor do we. C.S. Lewis is probably the greatest evangelical mind um, maybe since St. Paul, certainly one of the greatest minds and writers of our Anglican tradition. When he was alive, he was asked by a, um, a, a magazine writer who was doing a story on him and said, tell me about your conversion story. Anybody who knows anything about C.S. Lewis knows that Lewis spent much of his life as sort of this agnostic and suddenly he kind of has this change in which he begins to become aware of the deepness of God. But Lewis says to the author and says, now this is an evangelical here, says, I did not choose God, God chose me. It wasn't something I did, Lewis says, it's something that God constantly does to all of us. Lewis in other places seems to argue as a reminder that God chooses all of humanity, not because they're faithful, not because they're numerous in number, but simply because it is God's very being to love. In God, John's gospel, there is this constant image of the Father who is drawing us in, like a grandmother might draw all the grandchildren in so to hug them, to love them. God in John's gospel is not some distant figure, but someone who is so close to us. Jesus in this section of John's gospel quotes Isaiah 54. And in this section of Isaiah, God is sad. God's heart is broken on the helplessness of Israel. He looks down upon him and sees that they have just gone astray and God's heart breaks for them. When they're questioning whether God is still on our side, God reminds them through Isaiah that not only does he still care for them, that there is a day that is coming, God says, that all who are hungry and all who are thirsty and all who were lost will come. Hunger, thirst, being lost, the very things that the John chapter 6 and the story of the Israelites Wandering the wilderness are gut reactions, gut experiences that we can oftentimes relate to. One author says that the soul knows for certainty only that is hungry. A child does not stop crying if we suggest to it, perhaps there is no bread. Rather, it goes on crying just the same. Merton says that spiritual dryness is one of the most acute experiences of longing that we have. Rather than seeing the times in our lives in which we are like the Israelites and complaining because we don't have enough, 
that those are actually the moments, Martin seems to suggest, that we become most aware of our need and our dependence upon God. Philip Yancey asked, how differently will, it, will I relate to the uncommitted if I view them not as evil or as unsaved, but simply people who are lost? For some, that word summons up scenes of revival preachers who fulminate against the lost. But Yancey says, I meet it in a different, more compassionate sense. Several times while hiking in the mountains of Colorado, I missed markers along the way and on the trail. I wandered off course. I stared at confusion at a map and at a compass trying to find my way home and trying not to panic. Already, he says, I have wasted precious time and energy. I know the dangers of spending the night unprepared in high-altitude wilderness. But at last, I see another hiker. I call out. When I reach him, he kindly takes my map and shows me where I am and shows me where I need to go. Anxiety fades as I realize I'm no longer lost, for I know the way home. Spiritually, these experiences of hunger, thirst, and being lost are not something that we should feel guilty over or that we should lament over that there is something wrong with us, but rather we can look at those moments as a gift. A gift that we do realize that we can't do this alone and we need something bigger than ourselves. It humbles us. There are times in which I have been lost in life, and if I had not had those moments of lostness, I would not be who I am today. I would not appreciate how deeply grateful I am the times in which I am actually on the right path. I don't know what it is, but every time I've ever tried to walk a labyrinth, somehow I get off the, wrong path, the right path and on the wrong path and end up in the wrong place. And what a metaphor for our own spiritual life. Hunger at its deepest level is a sign that we are desiring love and acceptance and fulfillment. A desire for companionship and authenticity. And a desire that is even deeper than we often can put at words. We don't simply want a greeting card, love, or even some kind of general acceptance, our souls aim higher than simple tolerance. We long for a love that meets us in our hunger, in our places of thirst, in our places in which we are lost, that sees down to our deepest flaws and continues to love anyways. We long for an acceptance of the very fact of our being, not an acceptance of our behavior, for we are like the Israelites and not chosen because we are numerous in number or because we get it all right. We long for a one-way love that can pierce our hardened hearts and call us back to fulfillment. Amen.